0: Hello and welcome to Local Trust's Big Local podcast. My name is Stephen Bates and I was asked by Big Local to write about some of the communities in England that are receiving over a million pounds each in lottery funding. My essay, Community Spirits, is about how religious groups in England are integrating Big Local programmes into their existing activities and what challenges they're facing as a result. Community Spirits is available as a mobile friendly digital download at Local Trust's website www.localtrust.org.uk where you can also find out more about Big Local. Local Trust asked me to introduce these themes at a round table event chaired by Matt Leach, the Chief Executive of Local Trust. Here are the edited highlights.
1: Big Local is one of the most radical and exciting grant programmes I think being delivered at the moment. It's a programme that was launched in 2010, 2012, when 150 areas that had historically missed out from the sorts of grant funding that perhaps other communities had received, were each awarded a million pounds. A million pounds with almost no other strings attached. All that was required of those communities was that they organise themselves, bring themselves together, come up with a plan, and then start to deliver on a whole range of different initiatives to improve their local areas. What's been notable in visiting those areas has been the extent to which almost everywhere you go, you see members of faith communities as active participants in that work, whether leading local community partnerships, a source of local motivated volunteers, quite often the place where people meet. I go to a lot of big local communities and you'll see the shops are closed, the pubs are closed, Often the last institution standing, maybe the church, in some places the mosque, and that's where the community will naturally come together and start to try to make that difference. And that's why we were incredibly excited to have the opportunity to invite Stephen Bates, who's a former religious affairs correspondent for The Guardian, a writer and thinker on a lot of the issues that we're talking about here, to go out to a number of big local areas, to see what's happening, to try to tell their stories and to try to make sense of what feels like a really quite interesting, complicated story that's going on across the country. And one which both captures the huge amount of change that's taking place, but also perhaps the changing role of faith and of different faiths. It's brilliant to have you here, Steve, it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about what you found.
0: Thank you very much for inviting me to do this. It was a a project I entered into with a certain amount of trepidation, but I found it absolutely fascinating and absorbing and enlightening. Although I've reported from 45 countries around the world, I'd never been, for instance, to Collyhurst. Um, So I was out of my comfort zone for uh, quite a bit of the time. My experience as a religious affairs correspondent was very much involved with church politics and faith politics. I started off assuming that uh, everyone These days we're all good chaps together and all agreed with each other and soon found that that was actually not so. A lot of my time was talking about essentially political issues and reporting them in a political, certainly not a theological way. And this project was um, a chance to see faith actually in action beyond synods and conferences and those sorts of traditional establishment things What did I find? Evidence of faith groups in a number of quite unpromising and certainly deprived areas across the country. And their activism was motivated by their faith. They weren't doing it, obviously, for personal gain, but nor were they doing it for a general religious gain. They certainly weren't there to proselytise it was a, a sense which came from a deeper wellspring of doing good for their communities, making an active and positive change. Of course, there's a certain irony in um, the uh, source of the funding for Big Local in that none of the faith groups I spoke to liked the idea of a national lottery, like the idea of gambling. But all of them, uh, Christian and Muslim alike, uh, rationalised it as a chance to make good with the money which had otherwise leached out of their communities through the weekly purchase of lottery tickets. Will communities ultimately change and benefit from Big Local? Well, uh, time will tell. How far will faith have affected that? I think that I saw interesting and inspirational work in a largely secular context it may not put bums on pews but it's certainly a very vibrant form of faith in action so that was me introducing a few of the findings from my essay and here's the discussion it sparked with the participants. The Reverend Chris Falone of the Colliehurst Big Local in Manchester, Reverend Chris Allen, who's a Big Local representative in the West Midlands, Heather Buckingham from the Church Urban Fund, and Paul Bickley from the think tank Theos. Here's the chair, Matt Leach, getting things started.
1: Stephen, thanks so much for that introduction. I I was struck reading your essay, particularly by Collyhurst, which was the first big local that I ever visited. I found it fascinating going into your church, Chris, and looking at the debt service that was taking place on the front pews, where people just seemed to be able to get a bit of advice when they needed it, to slowly have their lives disentangled. And what I was hearing from the people who were there as they were passing through, was that this was the sort of thing that they probably wouldn't have taken advantage of If it had been delivered in a conventional, externally funded debt project, why would people be more comfortable coming to your slightly brutalist church in the (laughs) heart of Collyhurst? The church is well known in the community. Even in its worst times, it's made its building
2: available for community events. So it was a place that they knew uh, and it was a place uh, that they trusted. We took great care with the people we employed. Uh, We wanted them to have a heart for the community, a heart for the people that live there. And I suppose its uniqueness in terms of debt advice is that we are face-to-face. A lot of money advice provision today is either through the internet, over the phone, or through uh, mailed-out packs. Most of our clients need someone to journey with them through that process.
1: Does the mission of your church to the people of Colliehurst predate you as, as the vicar?
2: Prior to my being there, the church hadn't had a vicar for five years um, No-one wanted to go there. It, had, it was a community with um, a reputation, shall we say. Uh, probably an unjust reputation. I mean, it, it had had dark days. As I got to know the, the church members there, I felt we could do more. So we began quite simply with, uh, we opened our door one morning a week for a coffee morning. So people come just for a cup of tea or a coffee and they do a bit of craft and that kind of stuff. It was very unthreatening. There was no charge, there was no cost. And as big local came on the scene, and we did a bit of research in what the community felt they needed. What rose fairly quickly was the fact a lot of people's lives were blighted by uh, money issues, debt, uh, problems in accessing the correct levels of benefit, and so began my passion really to say, right, we, we can
1: address this. It sounds very much focused on changing people's material circumstances rather than changing their spiritual life. Chris the other Chris Chris Allen and Stephen were at a round table we held at the start of this project and there was an interesting moment when a number of of different mostly vicars reflected on on whether they were spiritual social workers or or men of the cloth and what the boundary was between the social mission and the and, and, the, and the religious mission were you primarily somebody trying to heal the community or somebody who's ministering to their spiritual needs. I want to flip that a little bit and say, I actually don't see the distinction. So
2: traditionally we put this great divide between the sacred and the secular. uh, And I think that divide is, is a false construct. Life is life, and while I, as an evangelist and as a minister, I want to feed people the bread of life, it's no good trying that if that person is physically starving to death. (laughs) It's not about filling our churches, though that would be nice, can't deny that. It's not even necessarily about me winning the chance to share my faith with people, it's about doing something that God cares about. And Paul,
1: the way in which the mosque or the church, even the church that isn't well attended, still gives sufficient status and power and recognition for individuals to make that sort of leap to start to tend to the needs of their area in a way that might not be possible if they came from a secular background or a, a parachuted in institution. To what extent do so we see that in all communities. The Christian idea of evangelism
3: is rooted in the sense of there being some good news to tell, something good to share. And in my experience, researching specifically big local areas, is that there is unity in how people see that. Church leaders just very, very ready to turn to this kind of work. It's not a wrench. It doesn't feel like something that they're doing, as it were, as a bolt-on to their faith. They naturally and quickly move in that direction because they make no distinction between the spiritual and the material needs of a of a community. In my own work, I've been working on resilience, particularly on the northeast of England. We overlap actually in North Ormsby. That's one of our case studies. And for me, um, what do churches and, and and the people in churches offer? Well, they offer social capital, they offer physical capital, and they offer spiritual capital. So, social capital networks, leadership. Uh, physical capital buildings facilities spiritual capital they're institutions of hope and they're often telling a different story to the story that has been kind of attached to a neighborhood you know this area is lost it's not sustainable there isn't sustainable community here there isn't life here it's dangerous Uh, you won't be safe if you come and live here with your family but I think that kind of spiritual capital idea that we're trying to use is, is, is that that sort of narrative of hope and a reason for action other people find that in different ways I'm not saying that's a reserve of the religious but i think that's uh, that's one of the things that see them
1: getting involved and chris you you come from a big local area where there's been a remarkable convergence of church and community hasn't there and that the community action center is located in what was the vicarage how easy is it to bring people from different backgrounds into what is effectively the local institutionalized national church. I, I love the quote in the book from Ishtikhar Abed, who
4: said, my faith encompasses my identity. And I think a lot of the people who come from different backgrounds, different faiths, might be able to align themselves with that particular quote. So I think that's how the diversity comes together. There's this common ground for people of very, very different backgrounds, different outlooks, different histories.
1: Heather, I'm really interested in your perspective coming from the the Church Urban Fund. Do you think we're reaching a moment when we need to look again as the last of our sets of institutions capable of meeting the needs of communities which other parts of the state, other parts of the private sector can no longer deliver to?
5: I think there are some things we need to be quite careful about around those questions. Um, Churches aren't always wanting to occupy the space that the state has previously fulfilled. Um, And sometimes, for example, with the food banks um, movement, you see that quite strong criticism of um, churches moving into a space which people feel should be uh, filled by the state. Um, But I wonder if part of what is happening is that as some other services are facing cuts and decline, whether some of this relational fabric that churches um, have provided in local communities is almost being exposed. And I think what I find really interesting um, and exciting about this essay are the case studies and the opportunity that they give us to um, hear from communities that we don't often hear from in that level of intimate detail and they also give us the opportunity to hear from people that we don't always hear from in a whole lot of detail in the public sphere as well.
1: Collyhurst again has quite a history it doesn't, in terms of its its community and the people who are there and Sister Rita who memorably had her her own daytime tv series was based just down the road from you and there's a there's a rather fantastic food bank isn't there in the basement of the local school how do you work and collaborate and coordinate with Effectively, arrival camp across the road. But well, you're quite right. There's a long history of the, uh, I suppose, what's called the
2: Catholic-Protestant split in Collihurst, going right the way back to the immigration for the building of the canals. The Diocese of Salford have the Lally Centre. Um, it was founded uh, largely by Sister Rita's efforts. Um, uh, created a food bank, uh, Big Local got involved, we helped them uh, with one of the green spaces we've dotted all over Collierhurst. There's no animosity, uh, and in fact, we made a policy decision between us that we wouldn't duplicate each other's work. Simply pointless, the Church of the Saviour having a food bank when the Lally Centre uh, had one there. No point in them having a debt centre when we had a debt centre here. So we, we simply uh, refer people to the two institutions, yes. It's
3: a good thing. Pull in in some senses religious life in the uk looks like it's in decline our take on that as uh, an organization that does a lot of research in this field is that the churches are smaller but they tend to be much more activist as well Uh, but the other thing that happens with that sort of general retreat is that people don't have that sense of territoriality anymore it's you know it's not like this is our patch, we're in control, even if it's the Church of England, of course. That just doesn't hold anymore. Uh, There has to be, there just has to be, and and I think the kind of areas we're talking about, highly deprived areas, if the the dial is going to be moved, even a little bit, it's by lots of collaborative action and there is no one... Kind of an institution that can have a kind of canonical territory you know this is this is our parish we do the stuff here um, these are our people and that that crosses a sacred and secular divide as well of course.
1: Stephen suggests the real competition if there is one in communities might be between the sort of secular believers and the church so people who've decided to put their time into attending meetings of green and environmental groups as opposed to competition between communities for people's souls and I I guess Big Local again is a place where some of that comes together in that you have incredibly socially motivated but secular people uh, finding themselves in alliances of convenience with those who believe deeply to try and change the places they both love. Chris Allen, this probably describes one of the places where you live and work.
4: It does, and I think it's there's a danger in the whole conversation here that it's only the uh, the believers from wherever they come from are, are are sort of well motivated towards social change because they work with people who certainly you would call secularists um, who are passionately committed to community development issues. I think there's a bit of self-selection of clergy, if I put it that way, in some of the areas. The kind of clergy that you will inevitably have in a more disadvantaged and deprived area, no if they're going to survive there, and I don't mean that just in terms of the church, it's probably keep your head above water, make any impact whatsoever at any level, that you need to work with your colleagues around the area and recognise that difference between, that Chris comes across really strongly, I think in the essay, um, that balance between the good news and the challenge you know, the challenge to the authorities. And I was gonna make sure he was quoted as saying everything is shit, you know. I was glad he said that in the book because particularly in Collyhurst, there's a theological rationale behind particularly tackling debt. And it comes through also, and I think in Sharia finance principles, it comes through in the Jewish principle of Jubilee, everything is given back to its original roots. And that this tackling of debt where money is used for oppressing people. And I think when we look at the level of debt and the level of oppression in many of our communities now, we see this is a a role that faith communities can really stand up to, because it's part of their main agenda, as well as everybody else's. And I read the story of Joan from Colliehurst and and this sense of freedom, you know, and and the role of of a faith community is to set people free. And her freedom was from the pain of debt, which is used to oppress. And I think in that, There's a massive overlap here between those who are secularists, those who have faith, to say, we want to lift the oppression of those who are most disadvantaged and most deprived.
1: Heather, we we were delighted to have Justin Welby visit a big local area. He was out in Newington and Kent. He wanted to signal the fact that he sees tackling debt and tackling debt in deprived areas as an absolute priority for the church. debt project something that we're seeing right across the country in all communities and being being driven by urban vicars
5: yes so that is actually something that we are seeing across the country church urban fund every three years runs a survey called the church in action survey um, which asks anglican clergy about the kind of social engagement activities that their churches are involved in last year we ran that survey and found that 70 percent of Church of England churches are running three or more activities that are primarily for the benefit of the wider community. Um, So that's a lot of activity and we know that amongst that um, debt advice, money advice um, and also job clubs are some of the most widespread uh, forms of engagement.
1: So I guess if you went back 20 or 30 years Church Urban Fund was big there was a lot of money flowing out and it was supporting a whole load of projects all, all around the country. There's not quite so much money now, and you seem to be focusing it on trying to make churches more entrepreneurial. There seems to be a bit of a sort of an enterprise risk focus. Is that is that a fair representation of what you're doing, sort of pump priming money, supporting experiments, trying to get a bit of a return?
5: I think certainly one of the things we are doing is encouraging innovation. We are seeing churches um, getting much more involved in social enterprise, for example, Um, but it would be a mixed picture as well of the types of activities that they're involved in. So, for example, a lot of the churches that we work with have set up places of welcome, which are simply community spaces, either in the church or elsewhere, that are opened up once a week for people to come, build relationships with one another, and start to cultivate a sort of sense of active participation in their community, building a sense of belonging and so on. Um, and that has really grown quite rapidly.
1: I guess one of the assumptions I, I had was that, you know, Big Local goes out and needs lots of volunteers to work and that perhaps lots of those would be drawn from churches which have lots of people who are committed to to voluntary activity. But Stephen picks up in his book the, the, the 2007 NCVO report which says actually being committed to a faith doesn't make you any more likely to volunteer than anything else. Chris, are you, well, what, like what, say... what, what is your church? And when, when we talk <laughs> about your well, church making a difference locally, is well, it you? The, the, the church
2: that I, I am the minister of is a worshipping congregation of about two dozen people. Uh, and it's fairly elderly so there's capacity issues about how much volunteering can be done my experience with big local is that in all of them the single biggest issue is is getting enough volunteers to do the kinds of things let alone sit on the partnership and chair them and all that kind of thing our data advice center to do the work we have to do we have to employ people to do it we can't do it with volunteers it's intense And it's very, very demanding. On the upside, we've been able to employ two local people part-time. We've trained them up with a set of skills. If I give you two simple figures, in 2017, we eliminated £1.2 million worth of debt. And we added £350,000 into people's pockets simply by correcting benefit applications that had been previously rejected. And we did that on a budget for the charity of £100,000. Currently, we are struggling to get that funding. So actually, people funding these kind of uh, strategies is really, really important. It was great to have Big Local with the seed money and the diocese and all those kinds of things, but the ongoing funding to sustain what, in my opinion, is just incredible work because you're not only just getting rid of debt, you're actually financially including people yes volunteers are really important but some of the work
1: we do requires that professionalism that comes through paying salaries 24 elderly worshippers aren't meeting those bills that, that's something that's coming out of the church of england as it's coming out of the church commissioners and central funds how, how long can that that be sustained. I mean, it is an irony that even if uh, 50 local people joined my church tomorrow, I
2: don't think that would make the church financially solvent simply because of the levels of poverty that are within the community. Though I have to say, um, poor people, it seems to me, are among the most generous people I've ever met, because they're giving out of nothing to help the things they passionately believe in. But what we've what we've done as a church is we say, right, what we need to do is rent this building to those um, groups that can afford to do that. So two other churches pay us a rent to use the building so that we then have the opportunity of putting other stuff on for nothing for, for the things that really count. It doesn't happen by itself. It requires energy, time and commitment. Um, then the church will, will continue if that energy and commitment isn't there then slowly but surely the facility will no longer exist
1: um do you think at some point the time will be right for you to step back and say well actually guys my role now is to support you to to take agency and make decisions or does your community still have a journey to to go on before it's able to take take on that sort of challenge
2: Sure. I, I mean, that time is now. I'm, I'm trying to step down as chair and there's a local resident who has said he will be willing to do that. He's outlined the levels of support he needs. And um, so I would hope certainly by the summer, um, I, I will no longer be the chair of Cullyhurst Big Local. So that, I mean, that, so I find that really encouraging that, that people are wanting to do that. But I'm also very aware of the challenges that are ahead of this young man. Um, and and the continued support he will need if he really is going to develop into the uh, kind of chair that he wants to be um, yeah
1: so the church will still be here for him well, well i hope
2: so uh, I, I mean whether nationally it's harder and harder to get uh, ministers into inner city areas um uh, ministers who's not applying for those posts if you look at the statistics um, the, the bishop of Blackman, Philip North he, you know he speaks on this very well but there, there is more money spent per head in middle-class parish than in a city parishes it's just a bald fact and unless we reclaim the mission of the church which is to the poor then there will be no mission
1: other Chris it's interesting to see Colliehurst looking to move on from a church dominated big local to one that reflects a broader portion of the community And you can see in other areas um, I get, I guess in, in in Corby and Kingswood and hazel lee's there there's a a fantastic charismatic really driven chair but somebody who's come from quite a disadvantaged background i think george would would admit he spent most of his life working in in difficult jobs often for a a minimum wage and becoming chair of a big local has been an incredible journey for him he said it's the hardest but most brilliant thing he's done in his in his whole life if there'd been a church there on his doorstep and the vicar had stepped in and said all right lads i'll sort it for you would you would have had that opportunity to develop? And, and how's that playing out in, in Grace Mary, Lime Farm? When will the vicars be ready to move on? I think in Grace Mary to Farm, the, the churches were, were very backward
4: at coming forward, if I put it that way, that they provided um, the accountable body role to start with. But there was very much um, a vacuum around Local people being able to fulfil that role, and the chair you've just described there, who have not never met, would would you know would be literally a godsend to many areas, and, and therefore that's where the journey would start. And and I think within this there is this this balance between you know top down, bottom up, community organising versus asset based community development, whichever way you want to put it. And it'd be great if everything could be just bottom up and go that way, but as Chris referred to earlier, the the ongoing challenge for many, many areas is around, first of all, community engagement, even in just getting people's opinions, and then secondly, to get them to take the role of governance by sitting on a partnership. And so therefore, there is a long road, but none of the clergy in that area and institutions in other areas are clinging to power. Each would let it go in an instant if there's somebody there to take over. And in many areas,
1: they are trying to develop the capacity of local people to to do that. Chris, thanks. Stephen, it's interesting. Your essay presents stories of some very different communities. And if you look at your description of, say, Green Moor in Bradford, that's a community that's bursting full of capacity, isn't it? There's multiple working groups. The chair is professionally qualified. He's a lawyer, I think. Are there lessons that could be learnt in other communities from the way in which people have organised themselves? I found
0: Greenmore um, very impressive. It was certainly Muslim-dominated because that's a dominant community in West Bradford. It wasn't exclusive, and it certainly wasn't exclusionary in any sense. Having come from Chris Fallone's uh, Colleyhurst where, as you've heard, he uh, has difficulty finding skill sets in the largely white community in, in that estate, the... Experience is different because, by and large, the Muslim communities, even into the second and third generation, are still living locally. They haven't moved out to the suburbs in quite the same way as longer established white groups have. And so the second and third generations qualified as accountants, as lawyers, and that's a valuable resource in itself. The next generations are
1: still local and still engaged. We're probably well overdue... Some government investment in recapitalising some of our poorest communities. To what extent is there still a, a wealth of resource and responsibility that uh, could be drawn on from, from faith groups, and, and how might that best be achieved? In the New Labour years, there was a
3: there was a massive, well, a series really of neighbourhood-based interventions uh, that were about helping communities become uh, more livable, sustainable. Um, Since 2010, we haven't really seen uh, much of that. And in a sense, Big Local has done some of that, as it were, outside of the kind of purview of Uh, the state and has been trying to do some of the same things on, frankly, on a lower budget, even though a million pounds is a generous amount of money, but it's not the 50 million pounds that was being spent in New Communities Fund, for example. So this kind of work has gone underground. It is about time that we see more policy that uh, takes account of some of the lessons that have been learnt through initiatives like Big, uh, Big Local. One of the lessons for churches from things like the Big Local is to focus hard on that question of their own leadership. Churches can be schools. Uh, they can be places where people can be prepared, can be exposed to opportunities. They want to take people on a journey of growth. They have the social capital, they have the physical capital, they have that spiritual capital as well, and it will be worth everybody's while to work with and not, as it were, forget that they exist.
5: One of the key ways in which faith communities can make a contribution is to be a conduit between the local and the national. There is a recognition coming from many sides that if we want to have flourishing communities. If we want to flourish as a society, then we have to work together across quite a diversity of different worldviews. And I think one of the interesting things that's come out of our conversation today has been um, a challenging of the way that we see faith, Um, often from the outside. um, It's very easy to perceive that that the idea that there are secular things uh, like the environment and there are sacred things like a worship service that isn't necessarily the way that people of faith see the world Um, they might see caring for the environment caring for people's financial needs as just as much part of their faith identity and commitment as um, talking to someone about jesus for example
1: thanks very much we're now coming to the end of our discussion. I'd like to thank Chris, Chris, Paul and Heather, but, but in particular Stephen for his introduction, the, kicking off this, this conversation, but also his fantastic book, which will be live on the Local Trust website in the next few days and will be available in hard copy for those lucky enough to meet us at events or, or write to us asking for them. It's been a really, really interesting session. I think we've probably raised questions I guess, in depth that we've not quite got to so far in the Big Local podcast series. So thanks to everybody who's taken part and looking forward to our next podcast in a month's time, which will be looking at issues of heritage and identity with Carrie Newsom.
0: So what did this whole project teach me? I thought one of the most striking things was how the various faith groups operated with similar motivation and with similar outcomes. On the wider point, I thought faith groups are showing that they're involved and they're valued by their communities beyond the church doors and the people in the pews. There's a sort of secular image, the new atheism, which likes to portray all faith as the preserve of irrational fanatics with anti-Diluvian views and deep fundamentalism, especially when applied to the Muslim community. Actually, these projects with the churches and the mosques involved, have shown that they're very far from being vacuous or irrelevant. They're doing good in small local ways and it's good for people beyond the church doors to appreciate that. Don't forget, if you'd like to read the whole of my essay, Community Spirits, you can find a mobile-friendly digital version at Local Trust's website, www.localtrust.org.uk, where you can also find out more about Big Local. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.